Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 15, Part 2 The Wilderness and Our Indian Friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 15, Part 2 the wilderness, and our Indian friends. My dear reader, I am afraid I shall tire you with my Indian stories, but you must bear with me patiently whilst I give you a few more. The real character of a people can be more truly gathered from such seemingly trifling incidents than from any ideas we may form of them from the great facts in their history, and this is my reason for detailing events which might otherwise appear insignificant and unimportant. A friend was staying with us, who wished much to obtain a likeness of old Peter. I promised to try and make a sketch of the old man the next time he paid us a visit. That very afternoon he brought us some ducks in exchange for pork, and Moody asked him to stay and take a glass of whiskey with him and his friend Mr. K. The old man had arrayed himself in a new blanket coat, bound with red, and the seams all decorated with the same gay material. His leggings and moccasins were new, and elaborately fringed, and, to cap the climax of the whole, he had a blue cloth conical cap upon his head, ornamented with a deer's tail dyed blue and several cock's feathers. He was evidently very much taken up with the magnificence of his own appearance, for he often glanced at himself in a small shaving-glass that hung opposite, with a look of grave satisfaction. Sitting apart, that I might not attract his observation, I got a tolerably faithful likeness of the old man, which after slightly colouring, to show more plainly his Indian finery, I quietly handed over to Mr. K. Sly as I thought myself, my occupation and the object of it had not escaped the keen eye of the old man. He rose, came behind Mr. K.'s chair, and regarded the picture with a most affectionate eye. I was afraid that he would be angry at the liberty I had taken. No such thing. He was as pleased as punch. "'That Peter?' he grunted. "'Give me. Put in wigwam. Make dog, too. Oh, oh!' And he rubbed his hands together, and chuckled with delight. Mr. K. had some difficulty in coaxing the picture from the old chief, so pleased was he with this rude representation of himself." He pointed to every particular article of his dress, and dwelt with peculiar glee on the cap and blue deer's tail. A few days after this I was painting a beautiful little snowbird that our man had shot out of a large flock that alighted near the door. I was so intent upon my task, to which I was putting the finishing strokes, that I did not observe the stealthy entrance, for they all walk like cats, of a stern-looking red man till a slender, dark hand was extended over my paper to grasp the dead bird from which I was copying, and which as rapidly transferred it to the side of the painted one, accompanying the act with the deep guttural note of approbation, the unmusical, savage, og. My guest then seated himself with the utmost gravity in a rocking-chair directly fronting me, and made the modest demand that I should paint a likeness of him, after the following quaint fashion. Moody's squaw no much. Make Peter Nogan todder day on paper. Make Jacob today 
Jacob Young, great hunter, give much duck, venison to squaw. Although I felt rather afraid of my fierce-looking visitor, I could scarcely keep my gravity. There was such an air of pompous self-approbation about the Indian, such a sublime look of conceit in his grave vanity. Moody squaw cannot do everything. She cannot paint young men, said I, rising and putting away my drawing materials, upon which he kept his eye intently fixed, with a hungry, avaricious expression. I thought it best to place the coveted objects beyond his reach. After sitting for some time, and watching all my movements, he withdrew with a sullen, disappointed air. This man was handsome, but his expression was vile. Though he often came to the house, I never could reconcile myself to his countenance. Late one very dark, stormy night, three Indians begged to be allowed to sleep by the kitchen stove. The maid was frightened out of her wits at the sight of these strangers, who were Mohawks from the Indian woods upon the Bay of Quinty, and they brought along with them a horse and cutter. The night was so stormy that, after consulting our man, Jacob Faithful, as we usually called him, I consented to grant their petition, though they were quite strangers and taller and fiercer looking than our friends the Mississaugas. I was putting my children to bed, when the girl came rushing in, out of breath. "'The Lord preserve us, madam, if one of these wild men has not pulled off his trousers, and is a-sitting mending them behind the stove. And what shall I do?' "'Do? Why, stay with me, and leave the poor fellow to finish his work.' The simple girl had never once thought of this plan of pacifying her outraged sense of propriety. Their sense of hearing is so acute that they can distinguish sounds at an incredible distance, which cannot be detected by a European at all. I myself witnessed a singular exemplification of this fact. It was midwinter. The Indians had pitched their tent, or wigwam, as usual in our swamp. All the males were absent on a hunting expedition up the country, and had left two women behind to take care of the camp and its contents, Mrs. Tom Nogan and her children, and Susan Moore, a young girl of fifteen, and the only truly beautiful squaw I ever saw. There was something interesting about this girl's history, as well as her appearance. Her father had been drowned during a sudden hurricane, which swamped his canoe on Stony Lake, and the mother, who witnessed the accident from the shore, and was near her confinement with this child, boldly swam out to his assistance. She reached the spot where he sank, and even succeeded in recovering the body, but it was too late. The man was dead. The soul of an Indian that has been drowned is reckoned accursed, and he is never permitted to join his tribe on the happy hunting grounds, but his spirit haunts the lake or river in which he lost his life. His body is buried on some lonely island, which the Indians never pass without leaving a small portion of food, tobacco, ammunition, to supply his wants, but he is never interred with the rest of his people. His children are considered unlucky, and few willingly unite themselves to the females of the family, lest a portion of the father's curse should be visited on them. The orphaned Indian girl generally kept aloof from the rest, and seemed so lonely and companionless that she soon attracted my attention and sympathy, and a hearty feeling of goodwill sprang up between us. Her features were small and regular, her face oval, and her large, dark, loving eyes were full of tenderness and sensibility, but as bright and shy as those of the deer. 
a rich vermilion glow burnt upon her olive cheek and lips, and set off the dazzling whiteness of her even and pearly teeth. She was small of stature, with delicate little hands and feet, and her figure was elastic and graceful. She was a beautiful child of nature, and her Indian name signified the voice of angry waters. Poor girl, she had been a child of grief and tears from her birth. Her mother was a Mohawk, from whom she, in all probability, derived her superior personal attractions, for they are very far before the Mississaugas in this respect. My friend and neighbour, Amelia S., the wife of a naval officer who lived about a mile distant from me through the bush, had come to spend the day with me, and hearing that the Indians were in the swamp, and the men away, we determined to take a few trifles to the camp, in the way of presents, and spend an hour in chatting with the squaws. What a beautiful moonlit night it was, as light as day, the great forest sleeping tranquilly beneath the cloudless heavens, not a sound to disturb the deep repose of nature, but the whispering of the breeze, which during the most profound calm creeps through the lofty pine-tops. We bounded down the steep bank to the lake shore. Life is a blessing, a precious boon indeed in such an hour, and we felt happy in the mere consciousness of existence, the glorious privilege of pouring out the silent adoration of the heart to the great Father in his universal temple. On entering the wigwam, which stood within a few yards of the clearing, in the middle of a thick group of cedars, we found Mrs. Tom alone with her elvish children, seated before the great fire that burned in the centre of the camp. She was busy boiling some bark in an iron spider. The little boys, in red flannel shirts which were their only covering, were tormenting a puppy which seemed to take their pinching and pummeling in good part, for it neither attempted to bark nor to bite, but like the eels in the story, submitted to the infliction because it was used to it. Mrs. Tom greeted us with a grin of pleasure, and motioned to us to sit down upon a buffalo skin, which, with a courtesy so natural to the Indians, she had placed near her for our accommodation. "'You are all alone,' said I, glancing round the camp. "'Yes, Indian away hunting, upper lakes, come home with much deer. "'And Susan, where is she?' "'By and by,' meaning that she was coming. "'Gone to fetch water, ice thick, chop with axe, take long time.' As she ceased speaking, the old blanket that formed the door of the tent was withdrawn, and the girl— bearing two pails of water, stood in the open space in the white moonlight. The glow of the fire streamed upon her dark floating locks, danced in the black glistening eye, and gave a deeper blush to the olive cheek. She would have made a beautiful picture. Sir Joshua Reynolds would have rejoiced in such a model, so simply graceful and unaffected, the very beau ideal of savage life and unadorned nature. A smile of recognition passed between us. She put down her burden beside Mrs. Tom, and noiselessly glided to her seat. We had scarcely exchanged a few words with our favourite, when the old squaw, placing her hand against her ear, exclaimed, "'Whist! Whist!' "'What is it?' cried Amelia and I, starting to our feet. "'Is there any danger?' "'A deer! A deer! In bush!' whispered the squaw, seizing a rifle that stood in a corner. "'I hear sticks crack, a great way off!' "'Stay here.' A great way off the animal must have been, for though Amelia and I listened at the open door, 
an advantage which the squad did not enjoy, we could not hear the least sound. All seemed still as death. The squaw whistled to an old hound and went out. "'Did you hear anything, Susan?' She smiled and nodded. "'Listen, the dog has found the track.' The next moment the discharge of a rifle and the deep baying of the dog woke up the sleeping echoes of the woods, and the girl started off to help the old squaw to bring in the game that she had shot. The Indians are great imitators, and possess a nice tact in adopting the customs and manners of those with whom they associate. An Indian is nature's gentleman, never familiar, coarse, or vulgar. If he take a meal with you, he waits to see how you make use of the implements on the table, and the manner in which you eat, which he imitates with a grave decorum, as if he had been accustomed to the same usages from childhood. He never attempts to help himself or demand more food, but waits patiently until you perceive what he requires. I was perfectly astonished at this innate politeness, for it seems natural to all the Indians with whom I have had any dealings. There was one old Indian, who belonged to a distant settlement, and only visited our lakes occasionally on hunting parties. He was a strange, eccentric, merry old fellow, with a skin like red mahogany, and a wiry, sinewy frame that looked as if it could bid defiance to every change of temperature. Old Snowstorm, for such was his significant name, was rather too fond of the whiskey bottle, and when he had taken a drop too much he became an unmanageable wild beast. He had a great fancy for my husband, and never visited the other Indians without extending the same favour to us. Once upon a time he broke the nipple of his gun, and Moody repaired the injury for him by fixing a new one in its place, which little kindness quite won the heart of the old man, and he never came to see us without bringing an offering of fish, ducks, partridges, or venison to show his gratitude. One warm September day he made his appearance bareheaded as usual, and carrying in his hand a great checked bundle. "'Fond of grapes,' said he, putting the said bundle into my hands." fine grapes, brought them from island, for my friends squaw and papoose. Glad of the donation, which I considered quite a prize, I hastened into the kitchen to untie the grapes and put them into a dish. But imagine my disappointment when I found them wrapped up in a soiled shirt, only recently taken from the back of the owner. I called Moody and begged him to return Snowstorm his garment, and to thank him for the grapes. The mischievous creature was highly diverted with the circumstance, and laughed immoderately. "'Snowstorm,' said he, "'Mrs. Moody and the children are obliged to you for your kindness in bringing them the grapes. But how came you to tie them up in a dirty shirt?' "'Dirty!' cried the old man, astonished that we should object to the fruit on that score. "'It ought to be clean. It has been washed often enough. Aug! You see, Moody,' he continued, I have no hat, never wear hat, want no shade to my eyes, love the sun, see all around me, up and down, much better without hat, could not put grapes in hat, blanket coat too large, crush fruit, juice run out, I had nothing but my shirt, so I takes off shirt and brings grapes safe over the water on my back, papoose no care for dirty shirt, their little bellies have no eyes. In spite of this eloquent harangue, I could not bring myself to use the grapes, ripe and tempting as they looked, 
or give them to the children. Mr. W. and his wife, happening to step in at that moment, fell into such an ecstasy at the sight of the grapes that, as they were perfectly unacquainted with the circumstance of the shirt, I very generously gratified their wishes by presenting them with the contents of the large dish, and they never ate a bit less sweet for the novel mode in which they were conveyed to me. The Indians, under their quiet exterior, possess a deal of humour. They have significant names for everything, and a nickname for every one, and some of the latter are laughably appropriate. A fat, pompous, ostentatious settler in our neighbourhood they called Mukaki, the bullfrog. Another, rather a fine young man, but with a very red face, they named Segoski, the rising sun. Mr. Wood, who had a farm above ours, was a remarkably slender young man, and to him they gave the appellation of Metise, thin stick. A woman that occasionally worked for me had a disagreeable squint. She was known in Indian by the name of Sachabo, cross-eye. A gentleman with a very large nose was Chujas, big or ugly nose. My little Addie, who was a fair, lovely creature, they viewed with great approbation, and called Anunk, a star, while the rosy Katie was Nogesiguk, the northern lights. As to me, I was Nonokosiqui, a hummingbird, a ridiculous name for a tall woman, but it had reference to the delight I took in painting birds. My friend Emilia was Blue Cloud, my little Donald, Frozen Face, Young C, the red-headed woodpecker, from the colour of his hair, my brother Chippewa, and the bald-headed eagle. He was an especial favourite among them. The Indians are often made a prey of and cheated by the unprincipled settlers, who think it no crime to overreach a redskin. One anecdote will fully illustrate this fact. A young squaw, who was near becoming a mother, stopped at a Smithtown settler's house to rest herself. The woman of the house, who was Irish, was peeling for dinner some large white turnips, which her husband had grown in their garden. The Indian had never seen a turnip before, and the appearance of the firm, white, juicy root gave her such a keen craving to taste it that she very earnestly begged for a small piece to eat. She had purchased at Peterborough a large stone china bowl of a very handsome pattern, or perhaps got it at the store in exchange for basket, the worth of which might be half a dollar. If the poor squaw longed for the turnip, the value of which could scarcely reach a copper, the covetous European had fixed as longing a glance upon the china bowl, and she was determined to gratify her avaricious desire and obtain it on the most easy terms. She told the squaw, with some disdain, that her man did not grow turnips to give away to injuns, but she would sell her one. The squaw offered her four coppers, all the change she had about her. This the woman refused with contempt. She then preferred a basket, but that was not sufficient. Nothing would satisfy her but the bowl. The Indian demurred, but opposition had only increased her craving for the turnip in a tenfold degree, and, after a short mental struggle, in which the animal propensity overcame the warnings of prudence, the squaw gave up the bowl and received in return one turnip. The daughter of this woman told me this anecdote of her mother as a very clever thing. What ideas some people have of moral justice! 
I have said before that the Indian never forgets a kindness. We had a thousand proofs of this when overtaken by misfortune, and withering beneath the iron grasp of poverty, we could scarcely obtain bread for ourselves and our little ones. Then it was that the truth of the Eastern proverb was brought home to our hearts, and the goodness of God fully manifested towards us. Cast thy bread upon the waters, and thou shalt find it after many days. During better times we had treated these poor savages with kindness and liberality, and when dearer friends looked coldly upon us, they never forsook us. For many a good meal I have been indebted to them when I had nothing to give in return, when the pantry was empty and the hearthstone growing cold, as they term the want of provisions to cook at it. And their delicacy in conferring these favours was not the least admirable part of their conduct. John Nogan, who was much attached to us, would bring a fine bunch of ducks and drop them at my feet for the papoose, or leave a large muskinonge on the sill of the door, or place a quarter of venison just within it, and slip away without saying a word, thinking that receiving a present from a poor Indian might hurt our feelings, and he would spare us the mortification of returning thanks. Often have I grieved that people with such generous impulses should be degraded and corrupted by civilized men, that a mysterious destiny involves and hangs over them, pressing them back into the wilderness, and slowly and surely sweeping them from the earth. Their ideas of Christianity appeared to me vague and unsatisfactory. They will tell you that Christ died for men, and that he is the saviour of the world, but they do not seem to comprehend the spiritual character of Christianity, nor the full extent of the requirements and application of the law of Christian love. These imperfect views may not be entertained by all Christian Indians, but they were very common amongst those with whom I conversed. Their ignorance upon theological, as well as upon other subjects, is of course extreme. One Indian asked me very innocently if I came from the land where Christ was born, and if I had ever seen Jesus. They always mention the name of the persons in the Trinity with great reverence. They are a highly imaginative people. The practical meaning of their names and their intense admiration for the beauties of nature are proof of this. Nothing escapes their observing eyes. There is not a flower that blooms in the wilderness, a bird that cuts the air with its wings, a beast that roams the wood, a fish that stems the water, or the most minute insect that sports in the sunbeams, but it has an Indian name to illustrate its peculiar habits and qualities. Some of their words convey the direct meaning of the thing implied. Thus, to charm, to sneeze, is the very sound of that act. To mede, to churn, gives the noise made by the dashing of the cream from side to side, and many others. They believe in supernatural appearances, in spirits of the earth, the air, the waters. The latter they consider evil, and propitiate before undertaking a long voyage by throwing small portions of bread, meat, tobacco, and gunpowder into the water. When an Indian loses one of his children, he must keep a strict fast for three days, abstaining from food of any kind. A hunter of the name of Young told me a curious story of their rigid observance of this strange rite. They had a chief, he said, a few years ago, whom they called Handsome Jack. Whether in derision I cannot tell, 
for he was one of the ugliest Indians I ever saw. The scarlet fever got into the camp, a terrible disease in this country, and doubly terrible to those poor creatures who don't know how to treat it. His eldest daughter died. The chief had fasted two days when I met him in the bush. I did not know what had happened, but I opened my wallet, for I was on a hunting expedition, and offered him some bread and dried venison. He looked at me reproachfully. Do white men eat bread the first night their papoose is laid in the earth? I then knew the cause of his depression, and left him. On the night of the second day of his fast another child died of the fever. He had now to accomplish three more days without tasting food. It was too much, even for an Indian. On the evening of the fourth he was so pressed by ravenous hunger that he stole into the woods, caught a bullfrog, and devoured it alive. He imagined himself alone, but one of his people, suspecting his intention, had followed him, unperceived, to the bush. The act he had just committed was a hideous crime in their eyes, and in a few minutes the camp was in an uproar. The chief fled for protection to Young's house. When the hunter demanded the cause of his alarm, he gave for answer, "'There are plenty of flies at my house. To avoid their stings I came to you.' It required all the eloquence of Mr. Young, who enjoyed much popularity among them, to reconcile the rebellious tribe to their chief. They are very skilful in their treatment of wounds and many diseases. Their knowledge of the medicinal qualities of their plants and herbs is very great. They make excellent poultices from the bark of the bass and the slippery elm. They use several native plants in their dyeing of baskets and porcupine quills. The inner bark of the swamp alder, simply boiled in water, makes a beautiful red. From the root of the black bryony they obtain a fine salve for sores and extract a rich yellow dye. The inner bark of the root of the sumac, roasted and reduced to powder, is a good remedy for the ague, a teaspoonful given between the hot and cold fit. They scrape the fine white powder from the large fungus that grows upon the bark of the pine into whiskey, and take it for violent pains in the stomach. The taste of this powder strongly reminded me of quinine. I have read much of the excellence of Indian cookery, but I never could bring myself to taste anything prepared in their dirty wigwams. I remember being highly amused in watching the preparation of a mess, which might have been called the Indian hotchpotch. It consisted of a strange mixture of fish, flesh, and fowl, all boiled together in the same vessel. Ducks, partridges, muskinonje, venison, and muskrats formed a part of this delectable compound. These were literally smothered in onions, potatoes, and turnips, which they had procured from me. They very hospitably offered me a dishful of the odious mixture, which the odour of the muskrats rendered everything but savoury. But I declined, simply stating that I was not hungry. My little boy tasted it, but quickly left the camp to conceal the effect it produced upon him. Their method of broiling fish, however, is excellent. They take a fish, just fresh out of the water, cut out the entrails, and without removing the scales, wash it clean, dry it in a cloth or in grass, and cover it all over with clear, hot ashes. When the flesh will part from the bone, they draw it out of the ashes, strip off the skin, and it is fit for the table of the most fastidious epicure. 
the deplorable want of chastity that exists among the Indian women of this tribe seems to have been more the result of their intercourse with the settlers in the country than from any previous disposition to this vice. The jealousy of their husbands has often been exercised in a terrible manner against the offending squaws, but this has not happened of late years. The men wink at these derelictions in their wives, and share with them the price of their shame. The mixture of European blood adds greatly to the physical beauty of the half-race, but produces a sad falling off from the original integrity of the Indian character. The half-caste is generally a lying, vicious rogue, possessing the worst qualities of both parents in an eminent degree. We have many of these half-Indians in the penitentiary for crimes of the blackest dye. The skill of the Indian in procuring his game, either by land or water, has been too well described by better writers than I could ever hope to be, to need any illustration from my pen, and I will close this long chapter with a droll anecdote which is told of a gentleman in this neighbourhood. The early loss of his hair obliged Mr. to procure the substitute of a wig. This was such a good imitation of nature that none but his intimate friends and neighbours were aware of the fact. It happened that he had had some quarrel with an Indian, which had to be settled in one of the petty courts. The case was decided in favour of Mr., which so aggrieved the savage, who considered himself the injured party, that he sprang upon him with a furious yell, tomahawk in hand, with the intention of depriving him of his scalp. He twisted his hand in the locks which adorned the cranium of his adversary, when, horror of horrors, the treacherous wig came off in his hand. Aug! Aug! exclaimed the affrighted savage, flinging it from him and rushing from the court as if he had been bitten by a rattlesnake. His sudden exit was followed by peals of laughter from the crowd, while Mr. coolly picked up his wig and dryly remarked that it had saved his head. THE INDIAN FISHERMAN'S LIGHT The air is still, the night is dark, no ripple breaks the dusky tide, from isle to isle the fisher's bark, like fairy meteor, seems to glide, now lost in shade, now flashing bright, on sleeping wave and forest tree. We hail with joy the ruddy light, which far into the darksome night shines red and cheerily. With spear high poised and steady hand, the centre of that fiery ray, behold the Indian fisher stand, prepared to strike the finny prey. Hurrah! The shaft has sped below, transfixed the shining prize I see. On swiftly darts the birch canoe, yon black rock shrouding from my view its red light gleaming cheerily. Around yon bluff, whose pine crest hides, the noisy rapids from our sight. Another bark, another glides, red meteors of the murky night. The bosom of the silent stream, with mimic stars is dotted free. The waves reflect the double gleam, the tall woods lighten in the beam, through darkness shining cheerily. End of chapter 15, part 2. Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty, November 2010.